Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. The thing about parrots is like, yeah, they can talk, but they're just kind of repeating sounds. It's that little dance that they do, that little head move. Good Lord, that is intoxicating. Welcome to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. We'll be covering my favorite chapter from this early portion of the book. This is John and Tyrion outside of the party at Winterfell. I'll be talking with one of my favorite people to talk about Game of Thrones with. That is Stephanie Barbe Hammer. You'll remember her from the prologue. I'll also include a short excerpt of my interview with the linguist who invented High Valerian and Dothraki for the HBO series. That's David Peterson. Just a short snippet of my interview with him. In between those interviews, we'll check in with Steve. And if you'll indulge just a little bit of self-promotion, Gods of Thrones Volumes 1 and 2 are inexpensive and available on Amazon. Aaron and I tried to keep these both informative and entertaining. I think you can get both volumes for under $20 or thereabouts. So keep that in mind as you're holiday shopping. Without further ado, here is Stephanie Barbe Hammer. Back again with me is Stephanie Barbe Hammer, poet, author, literary magician. How is that for an introduction? Wow, I love the idea of being a magician. I accept that compliment with great pleasure. Thank you so much. And it's great to be back talking with you. I am... I'm really happy to have you back. So I'm talking with one of my favorite people. We we're talking about one of my favorite chapters. Yeah, it's a great chapter. So let's get into it for sure. So we are covering Jon Snow and this is his first POV. Yeah, it is. I, the first I, time I, we see Jon's interior anyway. Yeah, for sure. And the placement, I'm so happy that you um, invited me to, to take a look at and talk with you about this chapter because it, it got me to kind of look not just at the chapter itself, but its placement. Mm-hmm. And its placement is so interesting because it's, it's, not, the fr- it's not the first kid's point of view because that's Bran. Mm-hmm. But he's the second kid and he's sandwiched in between an Eddard chapter and a Catelyn chapter, I think. Is that right? Is Ka- yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad you mentioned it. I hadn't thought about the placement, but clearly, just reading a little bit further to the Catelyn chapter, there is something of a wedge between Eddard and Catelyn that Jon Snow represents, right? Right, right. And we get Bran, who of course is the favorite ch- you know he's the baby mm-hmm. um and as a and we were just talking about how you were a, a middle child so you yes. know that the baby receive always receives this very favored treatment in a large family so we start with the favored favorite baby and then we get as our second child the baby who isn't wanted the the interloper baby That's the baby right. who's the problem 
He's the problem. And probably because of that, well, two things about John. One is we learn about John that he's in the parlance of the book. He's a bastard, right? Yeah. Um, we already knew that about him. But what we also learn about him here is that bastards in this culture grow up more quickly. So he's known he's been a problem his whole life. And that has created a certain complication to his existence and made him maybe older than his years would suggest. Yeah, he's only 14, which I oh. which really surprised me as I was rereading the chapter. Yes. And I think I think Martin does a great job at capturing a 14-year-old boy's voice. What do you think? I agree. And not just a 14-year-old's voice, but getting back to what you were just saying, a 14-year-old who's trying really hard yeah. to be an 18-year-old. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And kind of and, and succeeding at moments and then really failing because he gets so drunk. Yeah, that's right. The second thing I was thinking about with John is that he's perceptive. And there's a couple moments in this chapter where he's not so self-involved that he can't see what's going on around him. Yeah, great point. I tend to think of 14-year-olds, I certainly think of myself as being quite narcissistic at yeah. 14, but That's he's right. not. He's, you're absolutely right. He's amazingly outward directed. Well, okay, let me do my quick synopsis here. We begin with John, who is trying to convince himself that sometimes being not a Stark is a good thing. And he's, he's sitting at a lower table, so he doesn't have the pressures of sitting at high table with his brothers and sisters. And one of the perks is that he gets to drink as much as he wants. We get a little interaction with he and Ghost, the name of his wolf. And then we see him impress, in a couple ways, his uncle Benjen. And that's when we learn that John is probably a little bit too drunk <laughs> and reveals a little bit too much of himself it probably reveals that he's less mature than he would like to believe. We learn that he wants to take the black, go to the wall with Ben Jen, take the oath. And he has a really big problem with his, his social status. He, he never wants to father a child out of wedlock. This deeply offends him. And he runs outside weeping where he meets Tyrion. And this is really our one of our first introductions to Tyrion and probably the most robust introduction to Tyrion and those two have a very memorable exchange that is the chapter in a nutshell and of course we're, we're going to want to unpack all of the morsels of this delicious meal yeah it's a it's a it's really a it's a terribly important chapter but it's also such a rewarding one I think I love your adjective robust it is just kind of a wonderful meal I love this chapter. In fact, this first season of this podcast, we're covering the prologue to chapter nine. So we're finishing with the Tyrion POV chapter. And of all of these chapters, I think this is probably my favorite of the nine. Yeah, what's, what do you love about it? Well, two, two key characters, John and Tyrion, uh, have a very meaningful exchange. And they both carry around with them some kind of wound and for one of them the wound ha he's it, maybe healed over a little bit become sort of like a 
a scar that he like i'm thinking of Tyrion, a scar that you're proud of like Tyrion has become hardened to this idea of of being disabled yeah and he's become the the <laughs> he's become the curator of all the best jokes of being a dwarf he can always play a, a higher suited card whenever anyone jokes about him being being a dwarf for john the wound he's carrying is probably relates to his relationship with Catelyn and how he's always he's always been reminded over and over again that he doesn't really belong. And for him, it's still raw. It's like a raw nerve. It's almost like these two wounded creatures meet each other and for a brief moment are able to help each other in a way. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, they were able to connect. Well, I love your point about woundedness because I hadn't thought about the two characters in that particular way. As you probably remember, I'm actually interested in trauma and how trauma gets represented in literature and it's something that I've written about. And um, they are both, not to put too fine a point on, but they're both trauma survivors in certain ways. Um, uh, Tyrion carries the birth trauma of knowing that he he killed his mother when he was born. And so he has that that he's carrying as well as being really, at least so far in the book, the most radically other of everyone in this story so far. Yeah, not only does he carry the guilt about being the cause of his mother's death he also says that his father's never forgotten it or maybe he even says my father's never let me forget it or something like that right so he's been continually kind of re-traumatized by his own family and then i loved your point too about disability this is to put it mildly a pretty ableist society. (laughs) And it becomes a very, uh, Tyrion's character really makes a very uncomfortable mirror for us where we have to kind of go think to ourselves, oh, wait a minute, this world, which seems so different than Mm -hmm. ours, it's, you know, it's got the dire wolves, it's medieval. Oh, it's not so different. Mm -hmm. Mm, (laughs) Because we live in an incredibly ableist society too. That's right. George Martin has said that this relationship between the Starks and the Lannisters is in many ways, well, at least inspired by the War of the Roses. Yeah. So Tyrion in this story is not based on Richard III so much as he's based on the rumors of Richard III. That's right. He's a twisted creature. And not just twisted, but twisted in such a way that in this particular society, this bespeaks one's twisted character, but it also bespeaks how well the gods love the person. Um, And and Martin has said this about Tyrion, that, that Tyrion is hated by the gods, and that's how people would have seen him. Hated by the gods. Why else would the gods have done this to his body? Right. So even though our culture also has a lot of these peccadillos, there's almost this almost theological force behind yeah. 
the, the world that Tyrion has to live in. In fact, uh, maybe it's the show. I forget wh- where I learned this, but at one point Tyrion says, hey, if I wasn't born wealthy, they probably would have taken me out to the woods. So Tyrion's disability, I mean, in many ways, he's he's very able-bodied. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but, but it's the social stigmas to his particular disabilities that we're interested in. It's, you know, because easily you can easily wear an eye patch in this culture. No one's going to think twice. But if you look like Tyrion looks, then people are going to make all kinds of assumptions about who you are and what the, the things that you're capable of. I think Richard III was, the, the rumor was that he killed two highborn children. That's how evil he was. He, he's a child murderer. And of course, Tyrion gets accused of this sort of thing too, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, so that in a way, Tyrion, and I think that the book really emphasizes this uh, more than the TV show does. Mm-hmm. Tyrion really is monstrous, or yes. it appears monstrous to other people in the in the world of the book. Yes. Peter Dinklage is so handsome yeah. that he's he's such a star that he is bringing something very different to that character. But in the book, Tyrion is monstrous looking. He's not just small. Yes. And one of the key features of these ancient Greek and Roman physiognomic writers, the, these writers who would talk about Someone's how someone's uh, yeah. f- phenotypes would represent their character. Right. They are most interested. I mean, they have lots of thoughts about lots of different phenotypes, but they are most interested in the eyes being the window to the soul. Oh yeah, and there's Tyrion with the non-matching eyes. Exactly, and that would be a that really. I mean, you and this this comes into our culture too. Like when people are described with beady eyes or whatever, that yeah. is a carryover from ancient physiognomy. Oh, but Tyrion, I mean, if ever you could just size someone's character up just by looking at them, those mismatched eyes are going to justify a lot of abuse that people hurl upon him, right? Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great point. I'm thinking as you're talking about classical or uh, Shakespearean understandings of the topics we're talking about and this is making me think about bastards in Shakespeare oh tell me more and in particular I'm thinking about a very charming dangerous bastard and that is Edmund from King Lear who is incredibly charismatic and wrecks a huge amount of havoc before he's finally undone uh, by the um, actions of the play. But at one point, Edmund says something like, and, and paraphrasing incorrectly, something like, up with bastards or hooray for bastards, <laughs> because actual brother, uh, you know, half brother, I'm going to take your title and your land. I'm going to take it from you. And he does. Right. And, um, and thinking how, again, we tend to think of bastards, you know, thanks to Shakespeare and thanks to Western culture, we tend to think of bastards as dangerous, mm, mm. dangerous to the order. And certainly that's how Catelyn views John. And so how great is it to get that drunk 14-year-old mm-hmm. who is not dangerous. <laughs> he, he's many things. He's quite complex, but he's not, a, he's not a plotter. He's this earnest 
passionate young kid who wants to be taken seriously and who's desperately trying to find a place in the world. Yeah. And we already know about him that he is, he's happily, not happily, I shouldn't say happily, but he's willingly slotting himself into the social roles that would be afforded to a, a bastard. Indeed. He's not really trying to like reach above his social station. Unlike Shakespeare's Edmund, totally unlike him. Yeah, I almost think happily, and I was looking at our our chapter last night and looking at that opening where John is goes into great detail or rather Martin goes into great detail as to where John is seated and he's seated way at the back of this grand feast sitting at a bench you know not at the high table (laughs) with the dogs and you know it's kind of it's the area where anything goes and that's what's great about it is anything goes. You can have your dire wolf with you. You can drink like crazy. Mm-hmm. You can spear the chicken and, you know, shove it under the table and give it mm-hmm. to the dogs. There's a freedom to being not in the elite. Well, I think that John is really trying to convince himself that there are moments where not having every eye in the room on you is a benefit. Yeah. And yet he's drinking enough that we learned that him trying to convince himself that actually being a bastard is not so bad, that that's something of a superficial story he's telling himself. Yeah. Yeah. And yet again, this is the genius of Martin's writing. And yet at the same time, there is something very wonderful about not being, I love your expression under the eye of everybody because it enables you to look and see everybody else. And that's how the entire Mm. first section of that chapter is working. We are finally seeing the Lannisters very clearly for the first time through John's eyes, because John, as the sort of unprivileged, you know, family member is also the privileged looker because he's got the best seat. I'm so glad you brought that up. I want. I wanted to talk about John's eyes as a theme. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So I want to read one little passage here. Okay. So he's watching the procession or the the all of the pomp and circumstance of yeah. the, the it's entry like of the Lord. Graduation, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. so funny. Yeah. Hey, by the way, have you ever sat at high table? I don't think I have. I when I, Okay, so I got my PhD in Durham, and the college that I was a part of was called St. John's. And I, I never really spent much time outside of the library at St. John's. But I was always told that because I was a PhD student, I would have the, I don't know, at some particular fancy meal, I could sit at high table, which was like a raised table. Wow, like and, Dumbledore, and sorry, exactly. we're talking about a different set of books. No, exactly. So yeah, I, I was going to be able to get the Dumbledore treatment, and I never did it because I thought, man, that is some classist bullshit. I'm yeah. not participating <laughs> in that. All right, so I spent all of my PhD years avoiding that situation, mm. and then I got a job, not a, a job interview at Oxford, uh, which, by the way, I didn't, I didn't get that. Oh, interesting. It was bizarre. And at that moment, I I was reading this, like thinking back to that, you know, sort of medieval stone room and the oddness of being, you know, sitting up at high table. 
anyway. Yeah, well, it's, I think you were pointing in a bunch of very interesting directions. I mean, yes, absolutely, the classism of it is, is kind of astounding. And yeah. I think Martin is very aware of that, which interests me. But I think the other piece is we're back to your wonderful point a couple minutes ago about being under the eye of people. Because when you're sitting at the high table, it's not like you're relaxing, enjoying yourself. You're performing a certain social function and arguably you need to be, you can't get too drunk, although God knows the king doesn't worry about that. (laughs) But Ned sure does. Everybody else is concerned about because you're performing a certain social function and everyone's looking at you. That's exactly it. So here's the passage I was going to read. His Lord Father had come first, escorting the queen. She was as beautiful as the men said, a jeweled tiara, gleamed against her long golden hair, its emeralds, a perfect mat for the green of her eyes. His father helped her up the steps to the dais and led her to her seat, but the queen never so much as looked at him. Even at 14, John could see through her smile. Yeah. So we have a couple of things there. First, we learn that the queen's green eyes are stunning. They're like jewels. So we get the eyes theme there. But we find out what she's doing with those eyes. Yeah. Right? She's not yeah. she's not connecting with Ned Stark. She is she's never looking at her escort. And with John's eyes, he can he can kind of see right through her. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. Yeah, me too. And that's the first description that we get in this processional of people coming in. Mm-hmm. And that sentence even at 14, John could see through her smile. That tells us everything about her, first mm-hmm. of all. She's trouble. She doesn't even deign to look at Ned. He's not even there as far as she's concerned. Mm-hmm. And that smile, it's so false. It's so artificial that even a drunk 14-year-old kid can see through it and says, oh, she's a phony. And, of course, teenagers <laughs> are great at spotting that anyway. <laughs> But it also tells us something about John, who, again, it may be drunk, but he's noticing, yep, she's gorgeous. Yep, check out that crown. Yep, it matches her eyes. She's not even looking at dad. Mm. Look at that smile. That's a razor sharp brain working there. And I think that that passage has a twin a couple pages later. Here's also from John's perspective. He's talking to his uncle and he says, the queen is angry too, John told his uncle in a low, quiet voice. Father took the king down to the crypts this afternoon. The queen didn't want him to go. Benjen gave John a careful, measuring look. You don't miss much, do you, John? We could use a man like you on the wall. Yeah. Okay, so Stephanie, guest choice. Would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or would you like to climb the ladder of chaos? I think I want to talk a little bit more about, I have us talk a little bit more about Tyrion. Yes. Because this is our int- kind of our introduction to him, and he's so important. He's but important. I- he's beloved. He's got complexity that, that you would wish, you know... <laughs> You would wish every novel would have a character that's as complex as Tyrion Lannister, Yes, I agree. I agree. And back to 
all the things he's able to do. They did not use this part in the TV show, Mm -hmm. I don't think, but Tyrion cannonballing off the ledge. (laughs) Yes, he does do that. And doing this kind of acrobatic, you know, maneuver, um, which of course is talking again in such an uncomfortable but great way with the roles and jobs that little people have been able to get in our society, namely by being jesters and most especially working in the circus. That's right. And Martin has voiced some regret about this passage. Oh, has he? Uh. He has. In fact, he said that if he could take one thing back, it's that it's that passage because at that point in the story, he was thinking to make Tyrion something of a tumbler. I think that this ends up coming up a little bit in the later books. That's right. It does. Yeah. But what ends up happening, well, Martin gets criticized because of exactly what you just said. Yeah. Because of these types that certain little people are cast into. Mm-hmm. And and so it could be that Martin is playing into those types. And it seems a little absurd. Like <laughs> he you know, he he jumps off the ledge and rolls himself into a tight ball and is able to parkour himself onto the ground in in a somewhat graceful way. And elsewhere in the book, he talks about how how he's his his spine hurts him and his legs are cramping him. He it's almost like his body has betrayed him in a few ways. Mm-hmm. But in this one moment, he can he's he's almost a, a superhero or something. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. It doesn't it does come in very early in the book Mm -hmm. and I could see why some readers would find that troubling and it absolutely is playing with this ableist trope right that is been is been horribly misused I guess it worked for me again I'm I'm kind of going back and forth between the books and the tv show and are we doing spoilers or we are are we assuming that people have read the books yes spoilers abound because of course Later on, Tyrion is going to strangle his mistress. That's right. You know, who's obviously much bigger than he is. But he's able to overpower her and strangle her. So he is very strong. He's strong and he's in a few battles too. In some ways, he is an able-bodied person. Right. And I think, I mean, my sense is that... Look, Martin's world is not an enlightened world in many ways. No, that's for sure. And yeah. and the few people that are sort of on the border of modern enlightenment are certainly not going to be enlightened enough for our standards. And on top of that, if you want to take it to a, a, a more metacritical level, even if Martin is a very progressive man, he's a progressive man writing in the early 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I, I do have some sympathy for, for people that try, even if they don't live up to everyone's standards, at least they're trying. Yeah. There is that aspect of it. Yes, I agree. I, I agree. I think, I think there is that aspect to it. And of course, that's always a, an issue when you're writing, uh, when you're writing fiction is you want to do justice to Mm. all of your characters. You're aware, of course, of the world 
you're living in mm -hmm. and its injustices and the ways in which privilege or lack of privilege affect your standpoint. But in the end, you have to tell the in the end, you have to tell the story. That's so, right. And if I can just flatter you a little bit, you do a, a lot in your novels with the theme of gender, specifically very progressive notions of gender and in a world that where it, where it complicates everything, right? Yeah, well, and, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think you do it extremely well. And yet, I think we all have to be aware that in 50 years, people are going to read these stories with much different eyes. Absolutely. And find chinks in our armor that that we had no idea were even there, even though we were really trying hard. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great point, Anthony. And I guess to put another kind of little spin on this, I mentioned my best friend from graduate school when we were talking earlier. Yeah. My best friend from graduate school is a director, an actor, and he's really aware of who gets parts, who gets on stage, who wow. gets in front of the movie camera or the television camera. And arguably something important that Martin has done is may started to create a wedge where little people become our our actors, our heroes, and have major, major roles mm -hmm. in a TV series. And again, I, Peter Dinklage is an important pioneer yes. in, um, in saying just as, you know, I'm, I'm a little person, but I'm handsome. I'm sexy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a hero. I'm a fighter, as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. I, I'm brilliant. And that's a big step forward in representation and of course in work for folks who are who want to do performance and so even though martin couldn't foresee the way that disability studies have progressed he certainly did open the door ever so slightly you know let's, let's not give him too much credit right, but he does right. deserve some credit yeah yeah, yeah. And I think absolutely. And an open door is an open door. So I think that's worth pointing out. Anyway, he is just such a fabulous character in the books. And the books really give us so much more character complexity than the TV series can, just because of how the mediums work. And he emerges as such a complex person who's, back to your point earlier in this podcast about jokes, who really uses humor in this complex way, but it's also, as you pointed out, it's also such an expression of his own woundedness and his own sense of hurt and pain and that he manages to be so funny, so urbane and so vulnerable kind of all at the same time mm -hmm. is I think a real testament to Martin's wonderful writing. Do you think that, let me unravel a little theory that I have and I'll ask oh, you how it strikes you. Love a theory. Okay, so I think that Martin likes to put a new twist on old stories. Yeah. I mean, we talked about him putting a new twist on War of the Roses. But if you think about like werewolf stories that, that begin to emerge in the medieval period. Actually, yes. go, we go all the way back to Greek stories too. But um, if you think about werewolves, you could say that these Stark kids end up playing the part in some way. There's this 
line between wolf and human that is bridged, but not in a way that's typical. It's not like the moon comes up and, you know, people hulk out or anything like that. But there is a, there's a similar, there is sort of a werewolf thing happening, especially with John in this story. That's very, very interesting. And gosh, I, um, yeah, I think you're right. I was recently looking at a medieval, it's almost like a little novella, Bisclave. And it's about a gentleman, a knight, uh, yeah. who becomes a werewolf. Ah, uh, yes. And it's, and he, but he retains, he can't talk as a werewolf, but he retains all his courtly uh-huh. um, sentiments. And it's almost looking forward a little bit to the Beauty and the Beast original right. novel, which is French. And there is some of that feeling of that of, of Bisclave um, circulating in the the direwolf Stark, you know, consortium of people. Right. So that would be it's not quite a fantasy creature. It's more of a I don't know. I, I, I associate werewolves with horror. Yes. But one thing that is a fantasy, uh, someone who would be very well known in the fantasy genre would be dwarves. Ah. Uh. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Martin is, he's almost saying, okay, well, this story has to have, have some dwarves, but I wonder if what it would be like to really be a dwarf in a yeah. world like this. Yeah. It probably wouldn't have to, anything to do with mining, you know? Right. <laughs> it right. probably would have to have more to do with being in a world that views Richard III as someone who's hated by the gods. So I think that Martin does these. I think he grabs like ideas like tree spirits, ideas like werewolves, ideas like dwarves that really would fit well in a fantasy narrative. Yeah. But he's going to cast them in a new light for us. I think that's a great point. And um, Anthony, as you were talking, I thought immediately, interestingly, not a Snow White, which was your first reference. And I thought about that second. But the first thing I, the story I thought about, I'm thinking about the Grimm's fairy tales. And of course, the Grimm brothers are borrowing from all these medieval tropes also. Right. But I yeah. thought of Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin is bad. Yes. He's an evil dwarf and tricky and... It's inter- and, and very, very clever. And it seems to me, now that you mention it, that Martin is playing with that trope also. Yeah. Because Tyrion is very clever and is able to manipulate people. But, he manip- but he's a good person. He's manipulating them for good. But he's absolutely borrowing from these old stories about about dwarves and what they and Mm -hmm. and you know well wait a minute who are they you know what's it really like to be one i think he's absolutely asking that question are these people that liminal care like they're almost they're they're magic but they're other right yeah and they may just steal away your precious uh child in the night you know right it's it's this is a very It's a very unenlightened uh, way to to view these characters. But I think what Martin's doing is he's saying, what would it really be like for a dwarf in this world? Yeah. And the fact that they show up in so many tales, I think this is just a great point, suggests that, well, yeah, 
they're, they're, they're we're little people were in this world and they get sort of fetishized in mm-hmm. this odd way as stories often are used to make, you know, they make sense of the world in some way. I'm just going to read this section. So John is first noticing Jamie and then he compares Jamie with Tyrion. Yeah, yeah. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself as the man passed. Then he saw the other one, waddling along, half hidden by his brother's side. Tyrion Lannister, the youngest of Lord Tywin's brood, and by far the ugliest. All the gods had given to Cersei and Jaime, they denied Tyrion. He was a dwarf, half his brother's height, struggling to keep a pace on stunted legs. His head was too large for his body, with a brute's squashed-in face beneath a swollen shelf of a brow. One green eye and one black eye peered out from under the lank fall hair, so blonde it seemed white. John watched him with fascination. Yeah, what a description. Clearly, John is forming opinions about, I mean, John has notions about what, what a noble and an ignoble man ought to look like. Right, mm-hmm. Jamie Lannister looks every bit a king, right? And Tyr- Tyrion is just—he is just not. He just didn't strike the genetic lottery, right? Right. Yeah, he's really described in this yes. very grotesque way. And I, I remember in vividly this line from when they learn that Bran is alive, but paralyzed jamie says something along the lines of oh i I, give me death i'd rather have i wouldn't want to live as a grotesque right and Tyrion says something along the lines of well speaking for the grotesques yes yes i I would much prefer life because the life brings with it so much possibility right right right. (laughs) and how dare you how dare you decide you know but how dare you ingest right he knows I mean, his sword is sharp when it comes to humor and he, yeah. he can do it in such a way that both defends, he can defend himself, but he can also endear himself to people who would otherwise think ill of him. Right. Yes. He's a really charming and fascinating character and commanding in a certain way. And I think that becomes so clear at the end of the chapter where Tyrion says, never forget what you are. For surely the world will not make it your strength. And then he has that great line, all dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes. And then he doesn't, he saunters off. That's such a great verb. So the (laughs) language is changed because John is, of course, seeing him differently. Mm -hmm. So So the verbs change. He saunters off. And then there's this great moment when he opened the door, the light from within threw his shadow clear across the yard. And for just a moment, Tyrion Lannister stood tall as a king. Yes. And I'm hearing a little tiny bit of Shakespeare again, King Lear, uh-huh. every inch a king. That's right. That's right. I love that because we just heard that Jamie looks every bit a king, right? Right, right. That's what made me think of it. Yeah. And I wonder if Martin is actually using a shadow to foreshadow. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering too. Because there's a few moments where I think at, at one point, Master Eamon says, I see a giant come to us from, you know, to the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's referring to Tyrion 
yeah. almost jokingly as a giant. But then there's also there's this uh, this red priest in a much later book, right? Maybe in Dance, where the red priest, when he sees Tyrion, he doesn't see his exterior; he sees the giant he is. Right. Well, um, the giant intellect—that's for sure. He's the smartest yes. person in the in the books. Right. So I wonder if this is Martin foreshadowing with a shadow that Tyrion will at some point either rise in station or experience some sort of magical transformation that we didn't see in the show. I, I'm, I'm really oh. curious about the, the sort of Tyrion's outcome. Yes, I'm curious about that too. And gosh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, it's more, that the endings are more interesting than the series. Just, you know, to, to quickly <laughs> slip in my opinion there. <laughs> yeah. well, well, we all have to register our vote every now Yes, and we day. will. <laughs> Although I think a lot of people have registered their votes and they're with us, I think. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, I will say, Stephanie, there were really wonderful moments in that final season. I, that, that I don't I don't want to forget about those moments. That, that, I don't either. I don't either. Cause, I, think, and I think it's easy to focus on what we didn't what we didn't right, like, right 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 i agree with you no there were some wonderful moments i agree so Tyrion, it in so many rooms that he goes into and mostly because he chooses to go in brothels and whatnot Tyrion is the most wealthy the most powerful person in the room yeah and in those rooms he's, he's a lord right and yet whenever he goes home to his family he really is a second-class citizen, and I think that you could say the same thing of Jon Snow in a way. Absolutely. Well, the, what I was thinking about while you were talking is, of course, we were talking about Jon as the as the as the problem baby, the unwanted baby. Well, Tyrion is that in spades. Mm -hmm. He's the real problem baby because he killed mom. There's That's no right. big, and he's little. But he's and he, he's an embarrassment to his father, who wants the the Lannister propaganda to yeah. be perfection, nothing less yeah. than perfection. Yeah, he wants the myth intact, and Tyrion really messes that up. So from that point of view, Tyrion is kind of an extreme version of the problem that John poses to the yeah. family, because John is also an embarrassment. Right. That's right. And there's Ned Stark, who was so, you know, holier than now, more virtuous than now. And I think Robert makes some comments about that. And he had this, uh-oh, he had this lapse with this yeah. woman, apparently. Yeah. And it's a stain on his honor. It's a stain on the, on the family. And it really is a problem, as you pointed out, with the relationship. Catelyn's like, oh, well, he, I thought he loved me, but he had this relationship with this woman that was so important that he brought the kid back. Uh. Yeah. So what yeah. is that? That weighs on her. Yeah. This is not a culture of individualism as much as well, some of our favorite characters are able to find an individual identity that is satisfying to us. The default of this culture is collectivism. Indeed. Which means that ethically speaking, the right choice is to do what's what will bring honor to your own family. Right, to your clan. To your and clan. if you are in a position like John or Tyrion, you are almost never able to bring any honor because your very existence brings only shame. 
yeah brings dishonor but just the fact of you just the fact that you exist yeah no wonder john so desperately wants to find a place to belong that he's willing to give up his life basically at the age of 14 to go be on the wall because it's someplace where he belongs and he's so desperate for some kind of positive feedback from someone and he gets it from benjen and so he's like yep i'm I'm going that is his only avenue for honor right yeah 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 and and it just so happens that Tyrion has a much different view we we find out eventually Tyrion has a much different view of what the wall is yes yes although uh something that i just wanted to to share as we as we come to the end of talking about this chapter is i love Tyrion's capacity for awe yeah. he's such a curious person and i we get a sense of that already with wanting to interact with with ghost who's terrifying yeah i mean who's objectively terrifying (laughs) and if your Tyrion size would be totally terrifying but he's really interested in him yes he is and And so much so that he uh his tumbling (laughs) his tumbling frightens the wolf right and of course John is, you know, John's trying to play up the, the, the this is this is a really dangerous beast, and he knows that it, he's just a puppy at this point. Yeah, yeah. But Tyrion, he's not frightened. He no, knows. Not. He knows what everyone knows is that it, the way to someone's heart is through their most beloved pet, right? Yes. So you're right. He's absolutely curious. He's he's never seen a direwolf before, and so he he wants the experience. Yeah, and right. he's curious about the wall also. He wants to see it. It's one of the great wonders of the world. Yeah. And he is, as sophisticated as he is, he's continually willing to be surprised by things. And he is. And to be in awe of them. He is, and his, you know, his love of dragons is, is part, of, yeah. part of that. And I think he's a genuinely compassionate person, even though yes. he puts on a good show. I think yeah. I don't think he would offer the advice he offers to John unless he actually cared about John's ultimate well-being. I agree. I agree. That makes him fundamentally different than someone like Jamie, who he might Jamie might give advice to different people at different times, but he's almost yeah. a, he's almost a nihilist. It's almost like it doesn't it does whether you take my advice or not. It really doesn't matter because you don't matter yes and maybe i don't even matter that sort of yes yeah there is a certain existentialist strain that runs through some of the characters in the Mm -hmm. book i'm 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 realizing as i as i think about it yeah and you could even say that Tyrion. Tyrion is he's a very kierkegaardian character yeah because he's all about encounter yeah he's a very bright person but he's tragic you know he's he, he battles he battles with his own self there are multiple sides to himself yeah he's a doubter at times yes very much so actually. Uh, i never thought about that before but there is there's a lot of Kierkegaard in, in yeah in- i just um you were the person who who said well you know we need to think about martin as someone as kind of a hybrid writer he's just working in a lot of different veins and a yeah, lot yeah. of different ideas and something that i've been thinking about recently is 
is there is there a sort of sense in some ways that that existentialism and those those modern philosophical trends are kind of walking around in places in this in in these books and i think they are i think they are too and i think a, a great example of that would be that in the ancient world you have atheists but atheism yeah. means something else atheism means someone who is impious and will mock the gods and almost dare the gods to to strike them down yeah and then kind of live to tell about it and so yeah. we, we call this this person sort of against the gods a atheist mm -hmm. modern atheism is more like yeah i don't i don't believe in that superstitious nonsense there are people that are like that in the ancient world but that's not what that's not who the atheists are yeah i do think that Tyrion is more of a sort of a modern he's walking around with sort of a modern sensibility of atheism yeah at times yeah i think so too stephanie I can't believe this. I, these conversations go by so quickly. I agree. Such a fun time. Thank you so much. Um, I, I just, just for a, just for a veneer uh, that we've kept the structure that. <laughs> that yeah, I've we must keep the structure that that I've designed here. I just want to mention a couple notable introductions in the chapter. Okay, so we hear of the Great Hall of Winterfell, summer wine, which I've learned from my we friend do. Jana Matthews is a is a kenning. Two words put together like that. So summer wine. So Rickon is called the baby previously, but now he's called three years old. Tyrion squashed in face. We meet the word cur, which is an unwanted dog. We, we, we hear about Targaryen lore. All right. So we hear about the boy right. king, Darren. And That's I wonder right. if the HBO prequels will have any focus on this boy king. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, want, I just want to come back to our chapter, which has yeah. just been such a delight to reread. And, and as a fiction writer, I always value writers who can show, teach me something. And this chapter is such a brilliant example of how to use a point of view character to introduce other characters yes. because that's what chapter five is doing we're meeting Jon snow and Tyrion, of course and they're terribly important but it's we're also getting snapshots yeah of every single one of the lannisters in this very efficient completely memorable way we're yes. like okay cersei green eyes bad guy Okay, here's Marcella. Mm, doesn't really know what she's doing. Tommen, kind of a non-player. Here's Sansa. Sansa likes the, the, the crown prince. Ooh, she likes him. And she's very beautiful. Up, oh, but take a look at Joffrey. Yeah. Joffrey's bad. Joffrey's pouting, and he's a bad guy. And so we get these wonderful kind of shorthand descriptions of these characters who were terrifically important, but Martin enables us to remember them. We have a yes. kind of a shorthand. We're like, oh yeah, Joffrey the pouty kid, who's, you know, Cersei the green eyes doesn't look at anybody yeah. and so on. I just think it's great. It's just great writing. It's almost like there's a certain alchemy involved in that. It takes a certain kind of element to reveal the characteristics of another element. Yeah. So you, in order to really, to really showcase Tyrion well, 
you almost need a character like John, who may be a younger version of Tyrion. Yes. In order to really show, you really give, set up Tyrion for the kinds of lines that he needs to right. deliver in order right. to reveal who he is. Yeah, John is almost the straight man. I mean, to think about this is almost a little bit of a comedy team, yeah. you know, act in, in that last scene. And so you need, the, you need the straight man. You need the callow youth. You know, another coupling that I really like that has that is Arya and the Hound. Yes. And in many cases, Arya is playing the straight man. She's very serious about yeah. her, her, her list and what she needs to accomplish and who should live or who should die. And yeah. it just sets up the hound perfectly for these wonderful lines, right? Yeah, they are a, they are a fascinating pair. My yeah. goodness. Well, you know what? I like this pairing. I, I Me would, too. I would love to have you on whenever you're willing. I'd love to talk to you about this, this particular uh, topic. And I always learn so much. I feel exactly the same way, Anthony. I loved learning about the phenotypes from the ancient world, which I actually did not know about. So that was, that was awesome. And I loved your point about eyes as the theme of the chapter. That was I, great. All right. Stephanie, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Anthony. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, Steve and I actually talk about an episode for a full 10 minutes. Steve, you just watched The Wolf and The Lion, right. episode five. What'd you think? I, this one I, I dug. Was, there was lots of swords, a lot of sword play. This episode had a lot of action. It did. It had quite a bit of action. And, and it was almost more, like... A little bit more breastfeeding than I probably would have enjoyed. Well. <laughs> I was reading the wiki before we got on here, and uh, it turns out that it is a prosthetic breast. Oh, I thought you were going to say a prosthetic boy. <laughs> right. It is, it is. An animatronic boy. It is Pinocchio. <laughs> it's one of those grim tales of Pinocchio that we don't tell in the Disney version. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I want to be a real boy. Well, there's a price to pay, my son. <laughs> just, just. So, just uh, <laughs> just a lot. I mean, it you know, was... it's interesting to me coming from a very pro breastfeeding family. You have someone who is impaled in this episode, right? You have you have a horse beheaded, and several deaths by cutting with large instruments. Yeah. But the most memorable thing about this episode is the almost grotesque display of breastfeeding. Yeah, yeah, that's not helping the movement. It's not helping the free the nipple movement at all. No, it really, I, I don't see it as a positive development. No, not when you have what could be a 24-year-old. Mm -hmm. Well, in the books, that character, Robert, is supposed to be around six years old. But the actor okay. who plays Robert is actually well, 37. <laughs> well, he has to be, right, legally, to do that scene. Legally speaking. That, that, was scene, <laughs> that scene, not to get you in trouble. The guy's got to be pushing 40. <laughs> right, so Tyrion goes east with Catelyn Stark. 
And they meet up with her sister mm-hmm. who Who's is touched. She's a little touched. He's a little touched. Yeah, that's right. Lysa. Mm-hmm. The young fellow Robert. Mm-hmm. When he's done thirsty breast- boy. <laughs> when little thirsty boy. When he's done breastfeeding, he wants to make the little man fly. Meanwhile, Ned has found himself in something of a predicament. What, what is your impression of Ned Stark at this point? See, this is, yeah, that's a really good question because I think the trope that may be the easiest to latch onto is that he's noble, right? And that, like, he's noble in a sea of treacherous backstabbers. I don't know that that's as simple as that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there's some sense of Ned having a, a it could be more of a better moral compass than the rest of the Yeah, Varys says at one point, I think that there are very few honorable men in King's Landing, and I've been watching you, and I think you're one of them, right? Yeah. And I think Varys is probably right on that point. I think Ned is an honorable man or a noble man. The question is, is he too noble for his own good? Um, in that regard, I would say that he might be too principled for his own good. I feel like he is, He he strikes me as a very even though it may go against what the king desires, which is kind of like the gig, right? I mean, at least that's the way that the small council appears to be set up is Mm -hmm. you you give in to the whims of the king. But I think that he sees himself in this role as like, you didn't ask me to be your right hand to be one of these guys. And so I think his, he may have a tendency to err on the side of what he considers either the voice of reason, or maybe it's also to be just the, the counter opinion. And in his mind, you know, I'm not, you didn't bring me in here to be a lackey. You could have got somebody else. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried to catch a cat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, How'd you do? Did you catch the cat? No, you have to, you, you don't catch a cat by chasing a cat. You catch a cat by waiting for the cat, luring the cat. Hmm. You have to convince the cat that what you have, it wants. So in the process of catching a cat, you're much more like Varus or Littlefinger. You, you create a trap for the cat. Yeah, I would say that, yes. I, you don't I take know. the Stark approach. Uh-uh, I don't think so. I haven't found that to be effective, but I'm not that, I'm not, I don't have a lot of really great lateral movement. <laughs> is, is that so? I didn't know that about you. <laughs> Straight on, great. But cat zig and I'm not, I'm not a great zagger. You know, that's, that's something that many people don't know about rhinos. Is that right? Yeah, if a rhinoceros, I was told this by a native Zimbabwean, but um, if a rhino is charging at you, so let's say you're at 6 o'clock and the rhino's at 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. you want to run like at, to like 1.30. Oh, okay. Because he can't turn. He will oh. not be able to turn, which was one of the chief problems that I had with Black Panther because those rhinos, they were doing like uh. pinpoint turns in Wakanda. Gotcha. Other than that, it was quite a, it was almost a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think, I mean, again, do you think you may already know the Lannister Stark tete-a-tete at the end there where uh, Jamie Lannister, a guard just basically comes over the top rope with a folding chair on Ned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Was that a pre pre discussed maybe on, on behalf of, uh, of Jamie Lannister, like, hey, man, if it looks like things are going south, I need one of you guys to give him the old. I don't think so. In fact, I was I was wondering about that myself because I think knowing what I know of Jamie's character, he considers himself the best swordsman in the realm. 
and clearly the best child pusher. He's the yes, he's he's the best child pusher for sure. It's on the battlefield that he feels like he's the cleanest and the most virtuous. Uh, I don't think he would pay someone to go for Ned's calf or whatever. So I was wondering about that, and he ends up punching the guy afterwards. Yeah. But I mean, that could have, you know, again, that could be for show. But I thought it's a very strange that the guardsman did that. And I thought, I wonder if the queen looking out for her brother paid one of the guardsmen. Hey, if, if it looks, if it ever looks like it's going to go south, I'll give you a couple gold dragons and you, uh, you, you just, you clip that guy from behind like karate gotcha. kid. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that that actually is the case. It just seemed like an odd, it was, uh, the timing was odd. That the guy just stepped in and. Yeah. Got him in the back. So the disagreement between Robert and Ned. This has kind of been building for a while. In fact, if you go back to the King's Road, Robert mentioned this girl across the sea, and he was thinking about killing her way back then. Right. But to me, it seems a little contradictory. On on the one hand, Robert really wants a war. It's like he doesn't fare well in peace, and he's been too long since they've actually been on the battlefield, and he just... He wants to be a warrior again. He wants the joust. He wants the joust. Yeah, he yes, he wants that sense of his youth again. And yet, he also wants to kill Daenerys. Right. Which would almost ensure that the Dothraki don't come across the sea. And so he wouldn't get his war in that case. This is all very strange to me. I, I don't understand the conflicting motivations here. Well, I think it's important to to look at that pre-joust conversation with, with Ned and Robert, right? I mean, I mean the, the whole thing, I mean, his gut's hanging out. He's, he's, he's sort of, he's ribbing and torturing the young boy, kind of an abuse of power. It's, and then the fact that he wants to do this jousting thing, it, it speaks to the, the boredom. And Ned is, you know, tell him, hey, you, know, you can go out there if you want, but you're going to win. You're going to win because you're the king. No one's going to challenge you. No one's actually going to challenge, right? So, that, I mean, that sets up, that's sort of a, a foreshadowing for Ned, basically. Like, in that moment, Ned is challenging him, right? Ned is telling him, don't do this because it's not going to prove what you think it's going to prove. And essentially, he does the same thing with the orders to kill Daenerys. So, he's, it's the same thing. He's basically saying, look, and then what do they do? I mean, even his counsel is like, they basically refuse to even try to knock him off his horse. I think he's conflicted in the sense that he's like, yeah, he wants to get on the horse, but he also kind of wants someone to talk him out of it. Hmm. If you could choose any character in this show, Steve, any character, and you had to have their hair, and you had to wear their hair for a year, like that character wears their hair, which character would it be? Which character's hair would I wear for a year? (laughs) Hmm. Wow, that is a... That is not a question I thought I would. I mean, I can start going through who I, I would not. It would not be Joffrey. That's. I was going to say, why not Joffrey? He's got a beautiful head of hair. I don't. I just don't you, understand you, you are so Joffrey much Joffrey hate. You're so much more you. pro Joffrey than I'll ever be. Uh, <laughs> Joffrey, you know, like, you know how when you get your iPhone and then it can do all these things, it can pinch your face. It can make your face look all big. He's the pinch face filter. Look, he has a pinch face, but I'm not, I'm not holding that against him. He can't help it. He's a product of incest. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, so you're going to grade him on a curve? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Fine. As far as incest faces go, not so bad. All right. So, you're not going to choose Joffrey's I'm going to choose haircut. Joffrey. Not, I'm not usually a fan of the long hair. So, you're not uh, going to go with Ned? 
I'm gonna go with Ned. I mean, I am a fan of the of the those those sideburns. Yeah, the Sir Roderick. But again, I just feel like I'm you know I gotta learn to braid. That's a whole thing. You know, I could probably. You know, Renly, the guy who's getting his chest shaved. Yeah, yeah. That's not so bad. That's not a terrible look. No, I could, I could, I could do the, I could do the Renly. I could, I could maybe, I could probably pull off the little finger. Well, um, and he's a little salt and pepper too. That would actually, it, it wouldn't. You'd look strange with with a platinum wig. Yeah. But the salt and pepper wouldn't be so bad. I think, I, I think that would be because he, as a guy who's been blonde or bald, I think I would really like to have a year looking like a, a medieval Mister Fantastic. Mm. Well, okay, that's. Uh, that, that answers all my questions. <laughs> and now here's a brief excerpt of my interview with David Peterson. David is probably best known for having invented Dothraki and High Valyrian. He's also done work for the MCU and a lot of other films and television shows. Most recently, he's been working on the upcoming Dune film. Here is David Peterson. David, I have asked this of various guests... Sometimes it makes it in the pod and sometimes it doesn't, but I've never asked this of a linguist. Okay. All right. I'm really curious to hear what you say about this. David Peterson, what is your relationship to your own voice? Uh, I, I definitely hear it in my own head all the time. And I have to tell you, it's been changing recently. So I've always loved the sound of my own voice. I always talk to myself. I've done... Like I grew up just also doing, doing voices, uh, you know, just imitating voices, doing things like that. That's, that's, that's what I grew up doing as a young child and have done for many, many years. It has disturbed me in recent years as I felt the, uh, quality of my voice change hmm. and especially how I hear it in my head. Occasionally my own voice to me sounds like, What's his face? I can't even remember this guy. The dude with the the curly red hair. He's been in Big Hero Six. He's been in. Uh, oh yeah, uh, I know who you're talking. The, the uh, T.J. Miller. T.J. Miller. There it is. Yes, it's made me very uncomfortable that hearing my own voice has reminded me of his voice in recent years, and that's a new thing. It's 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 changed. Not all the time. Not all the time. But especially if I I don't know if I get a little tired or something, um, or if I've eaten. Uh, and so that disturbs me because it sounds like something specific, something that I don't want to sound like, and it doesn't sound like me. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And one I, I usually don't get to reflect on right now, I should say right now, I, I do feel very much like myself. And so I like that. Do you feel like your love of, uh, imitation of different language or I don't know, different voices when you were a kid? Mm -hmm prepared you early on for your interest in in linguistic studies yeah i think it did uh and i i've i didn't think about it very much uh you know in the early days of you know creating languages or anything like that but but yeah i think it it probably did quite a bit and i think that it really helped me when it came to you know getting the jobs that i do because of course i record all of the lines that i translate Hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it helps basically you have to, you have to kind of act the line because you're yeah. trying your very best to pronounce it exactly the way you think it ought to be pronounced. 
But so, you know, and a lot you, of times I'm imagining the actors are mimicking you. Pretty much almost 100%. Yeah. yeah. They're just listening to exactly the way I do it and they're repeating it, uh-huh. which means that if uh, often if there are errors that creep in, they are my errors. So, so <laughs> you're like wrong. Cyrano de Bergiac uh, analog <laughs> to like Grey Worm and whatnot. <laughs> well, not him specifically, I will tell you, because that dude is amazing. He is my number one favorite performer of any show or movie I have ever worked on. He's so good. So huh. good that he is head and shoulders better than me. And I can't say that about most of the actors I've worked with. Uh, well, just then, in terms of like pronunciation, not, not you know, acting. Acting, they're great. The clearly yeah. underrated. Underrated performance. Yeah. According to David Peterson. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, I was just doing, do, I was looking at my Duolingo app today. Mm-hmm. Did you do the High Valerian grammar for Duolingo or was that someone else? I did the whole thing and recorded every line. That's my voice. That's your voice. I was just going to yep. ask you, how, how do you feel about the guy who, <laughs> who recorded <laughs> all those? But that, you, you probably feel pretty good about him since it's you. I feel great about him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I would imagine. I don't. I don't know if you can talk about this, but I would imagine that if I were a showrunner and I was going to be, you know, creating a spinoff from Game of Thrones, and it was going to focus on the Targaryens. I might want someone with who is an expert, maybe even someone who created the lion's share of the language to be on board with the project. Does that sound plausible? I mean, it's definitely something I would want. Um, and yeah, it's, it's probably plausible. I mean, everybody has my contact info. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always a question of if it's going to show up in the show uh, or not. And, you know, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah, you're going to have to wait and see on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my friends is Chase Stone. He does uh, illustrations. He did a few illustrations for World of Ice and Fire. Oh, cool! And uh, he did some dra- dragon images. And he had one interaction with Martin. And the interaction was that <laughs> he got he got a, just a single line of a- advice <laughs> from Martin. And Martin said, "Dragons have claws, and they have fangs. They do not have." spikes <laughs> and i want to know do you have any such interactions uh with with martin i've had a number of interactions with him uh a number that i i really prize i've, I've actually got a whole series of emails between him especially at the beginning when i was uh asking for his advice and for more specific information about uh dothraki um, and he has asked me for translations in the past uh, a couple of, of favorites. Um, I asked him about the giants uh, and their linguistic abilities yeah. at one point in time, because I was going to have to create a giant language, even though I didn't know it was for one line. Could have told me that. But um, <laughs> And so I... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I didn't You're telling me you created the, the language for the giants, and then uh-huh. they only used one word of the language in the show? No, not one word. One line. Oh, the well, line only had ended up having three words, but uh, okay, yeah. one okay. line. 
But um, I, I asked him, like, you know, I know that the Giants speak the old tongue, but like how fully developed is it? Is this something that's kind of more of a pigeon? Like, how does this work? Um, and he responded, the Giants speak the old tongue after a fashion, <laughs> but they are not altogether right. Uh, but I just couldn't believe that he used the expression after a fashion in an email to me. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's some really nice ass covering there. You have to admire that because it allows him to say, yeah, it's in some way related. It is accurate though. Like basically they do, they speak the old tongue as best they can. And right. it's not very well because they're not very smart. So like, yeah, I, I got it completely. And that was, that was honestly all the direction I needed to be able to do what I had to do. Oh man, that's um, fantastic. But in addition, I wanted to mention this. So uh, George R. R. Martin has often commented that he doesn't, you know, have like a full Dothraki or high Valyrian language written up that he just makes stuff up on the spot. But um, I was really impressed by the fact that everything created for Dothraki hung together so well. There were hmm. um, no inconsistencies, either at the grammatical level or the phonological level. Um, and so then at one point, like he, he was asking me for translations for stuff for the map book. Um, and so I, I sent him back some translations. And then uh, he said, I also was thinking of doing uh, these. And he sent me some translations that he did on his own. Uh, using my reference materials, which he has. Mm -hmm. And I responded, I'm like, I said, yes, that's exactly correct. I have to say, I'm kind of astounded because I mean, I don't, these aren't forward facing materials. They're materials for me and they're written mm -hmm. like a linguistic text. Um, and I was like, I, I can't believe it. I, that's, it's a hundred percent correct. I'm really impressed that you got all that right. And he said, and he said to me, he said, well, you sent me the grammar and dictionary for your language. So I reviewed the grammar rules and found the uh, appropriate words and then uh, put them in the correct order. It didn't seem that hard. And I was like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you would be surprised, sir. <laughs> yes, you'd be very surprised how hard that is for some I, people. You know what? I love to know that about Martin because I do think that sometimes when he gets compared to Tolkien – he gets kind of a bad rap that really he hasn't thought a whole lot of things through when he, he kind of is aiming as he shoots, like, you know, ready, fire, aim, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Tolkien had it all worked out, uh, you know, he had the foundation later, whatever. But that story tells me that uh, that he might write that way, but he takes seriously the ground that he's, that he's already laid. Like, he's, he's taking seriously the tracks behind him. And that's impressive. Yeah. Not only that, he has the, you know, the wherewithal to be able to do it right. very well. So, right. I mean, I was impressed. <laughs> well, David, this has been super fun. I mean, I just love talking about this and I've learned so much uh, about you and I, and I hope, I hope the best. Are you working? Tell me, are you working on any projects now that we should be excited about? Uh, well, a uh, movie I worked on that just came out was Christmas Chronicles 2, so that's on Netflix, and featured a surprising amount of my language, especially compared to the first film. Uh, all pretty much, pretty much done with season two of The Witcher. I think I probably just contributed my last bit uh, last week, um, and so 
that should be in the can very soon. Uh, season one of Shadow and Bone on Netflix, that should be coming out um, sometime. I think we're totally done filming that. Uh, I have no idea when it's coming out. Uh, there is another show I'm working on that I can't talk about. Um, All right. So that's sometime in the future. And then there is another show that I'm working on that I can't talk about mm-hmm. even further in the future. Uh, and then, of course, the the Dune film, um, you know, in a very normal world, I would have been very excited to see that in 16 days. But, uh, you know, the world being the way it is now, uh, right. Dune has been pushed almost a full year to October 2021. They really want people to see it in theaters, evidently. And so they're right. like, they're, they're really crossing their fingers and say, my God, by October of next year, please let us be normal again. You know, look forward to that, but not as not as soon as we all were hoping. And then aside from that, I do have a video game project that's going to come out sometime. And I'm very excited about that one. But like, can you I don't know. can you reveal the name of that or does it have a name yet? Uh, no, that one I can't. So trust me, if I can tell you stuff, I'll tell you stuff. But that <laughs> one and the two shows, those are under wraps. Um, and then I think I'm working on some other stuff, but I can't remember at this point. Well, you you've definitely taken advantage of, uh, of, of 2020. You're busy as probably busier than you've ever been. It's well, not busier than I've ever been, but I've been very fortunate. Um, very fortunate this year uh, to continue working on projects that I was already working on and to pick up some new projects uh, because a lot of what was getting shut down was actual production, but the writing was still happening. And that's really right. the part where I'm involved. Sure. Uh, so you mean they don't I come to you. I, I always thing. imagine that they came to you on the back end thinking like, okay, we're just going to put a blank here because, you know, they're going to put mm-hmm. in gobbledygook and then we'll go get David and he'll fill in the blanks for us later. Oh, they have. They have. <laughs> there have been productions that have tried that and which I just had to walk away from like the boys on Amazon. I can't believe that they're like, we debut next month. So it's like, are you kidding? You're premiering next month. And there was that one. And uh, what was it? Star Trek Picard. That was another one. It just wasn't enough time. Um, sure. Yeah. The so yeah, I had to pass on those. Well, what a what a delight uh, to talk with uh, you about not just language building, world building. I, I mean, there's so much about the world building efforts of a fantasy narrative that really rely on the language construction, and uh, yeah, and so it's it's really fun to get at it in that 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 way. It helps to set the scene, and so I appreciate it when authors put in the effort. And now for this week's Bird's Eye View. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk to you about werewolves. Because, of course, we know that John is going to, in some way, merge with a wolf. And we wouldn't necessarily think of that as following the rules of werewolves as we know them. Those rules being that there's a guy, and the full moon comes out, and he wolves out, and then when the moon goes behind the clouds, then he turns back into a human. No, this has not always been the standard rules for werewolves. Our thought on werewolves has evolved quite a bit, and this story from the Middle Ages is going to illustrate how our thinking has evolved. This story comes from medieval Ireland. 
it starts with a priest around a campfire. So this priest is traveling, and he's sitting by a campfire when a wolf approaches. And the wolf says, hey, don't be afraid, nothing to be afraid of. I'm actually a human who was turned into a wolf. The priest is a little skeptical, and the wolf's story is that he's got this curse on him. And this curse, unfortunately, turned him and his wife into wolves. And so the curse goes, they've got to stay wolves for seven years, and then at the end of seven years, someone else has to turn into a wolf, and they get to not be wolves anymore. But it always happens in twos. So he and his wife had been turned into wolves. But they're Catholic. And his wife is close to death. So he, they need a priest to administer last rites. Well, the priest, as you might imagine, is a little skeptical. So he quizzes the wolf on right Catholic doctrine. The, the wolf is able to answer every one of the priest's questions. He, he truly is a tried and true Catholic. So the priest goes with the wolf into the woods. And sure enough... They find his wife, a she-wolf, who is underneath a tree, in the hollow underneath a tree. And the wife is close to death, and so the priest administers last rites, and then the wolf asks for a second favor. This time he wants Holy Communion. Well, this is just too much for the priest. The priest is like, priests do not administer Holy Communion to wolves. Thank you very much. And he gets skeptical again. He's like, I don't know if you're really humans. And so... The wolf thinks, well, what can I do to convince you that we're really human? And what he does is he takes his wolf claw and he rends his wife from chin to navel. And he opens up, folds back the, the wolf skin, and there underneath the wolf skin is the human form of an old woman who's close to death. Well, the priest is totally convinced, and so he offers the wolf and the she-wolf holy communion, and then the wolf replaces the skin of his wife and walks the priest back to the road. Nothing bad happens to the priest. In fact, the wolf gives him uh, some really great advice, uh, gives him directions, and they have a conversation about occupied Ireland, and the wolf has some weird suggestions about how God ordains certain countries to be occupied and certain countries to rule. That's kind of weird. So everything goes fine for this guy. He leaves, and then eventually he gets into trouble with his synod because. Was it right to give a wolf communion? And Gerald of Wales, who is recounting this story, names himself as someone who was sought for, for advice on this particular matter. So he writes a letter to the Synod. It's Gerald's opinion that lots of things transform from one thing to the next. And while the human form is the image of God, and therefore you only give Holy Communion to the human form, some exceptions can be made. For instance, we all know about witches who turn into rabbits. Everyone knows about that, right? So this is maybe not that different than the witches that turn into rabbits. We also know that there are these, these poor women that could turn into cattle at one point so the witches could you know, make them do the work of the field, and then these women turn back from cows into women again. And then Gerald of Wells, being a good Catholic, says, and don't forget that the bread and the wine of communion transform into the body and blood of our Lord and Savior. So let's not be too quick to judge a human who's turned into a wolf. So Gerald of Wales agrees. What's the problem? Give Holy Communion to werewolves. And I agree with that too. If ever I met a werewolf, I've got no problem with werewolves being as Catholic as much or as little as they'd like to be. That's religious freedom, folks. And that's all for this week. 
next time on Electric Bookaloo. You are pregnant with a baby. Right. You have to eat an entire horse heart. Right, yeah. I guess I didn't quite understand. Like, if she couldn't eat it, what happens? I think she's going to throw up. Yeah, but then what does that mean for the baby? Does that, like... No one wants to throw up, dude.